0: You're listening to Colorado Outdoors, the podcast for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. In this episode of Colorado Outdoors, we're going to discuss moose, a reintroduction success story here in the Centennial State. And what you need to know if you ever come across a moose out in the wild. Historical records dating back to the 1850s indicate that moose wandered into northern Colorado from Wyoming, but were transient and never really established a stable breeding population. Now, most of the historic sightings involved hunters seeing and or harvesting a single bull moose. In 1978, state wildlife experts transplanted 24 male and female moose from Wyoming and Utah to create a breeding population in North Park and provide hunting opportunities. Additional moose from Wyoming, Utah, and of course Colorado's own growing population were Introduced to other areas of western Colorado over the years, including the northwest region of the state, in 2005, the project succeeded in creating new hunting opportunities and a popular wildlife viewing option. Listening to Colorado Outdoors, the podcast for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. I'm your host, Mark Johnson. The podcast is powered by Great Outdoors Colorado. GOCO invests a portion of Colorado lottery proceeds to help preserve and enhance the state's parks, trails, wildlife, rivers, and open spaces. Its independent board awards competitive grants to local governments and land trusts and makes investments through Colorado Parks and Wildlife, created when voters approved a constitutional amendment back in 1992. GOCO has committed more than $1.2 billion in lottery proceeds to more than 5,200 projects in all 64 counties without any tax dollars Support. Joining us to talk about that is Bill Devergie, Area Wildlife Manager, who was involved back in 2005 in reintroducing moose to the northwest part of Colorado and specifically working on getting moose in the White River National Forest. Bill, we appreciate you joining us here on Colorado Outdoors. Maybe that's where we'll start right there. So moose were already in North Park. Take us back to 2005 and talk about the reasoning behind trying to expand that population in the northwest Colorado.
1: So, yeah, we, we had the original population in North Park by Walden, and then they had the second population down in the southern part of the state near Creed, and over time we just started looking at the habitat that we have available, the large spaces, the the geographic areas that could support moose across the state. We want to give our sportsmen and, and, and just public in general the opportunity to appreciate the various wildlife species we have, so we realized there was an opportunity to expand those two smaller, or those two original moose populations, create a third and potentially a fourth, and and even in the future, we may continue to try to spread them across the
0: state. Well, Bill, I, I was thinking about it and in, in getting ready to talk to you and others on this podcast about this topic. You know, we we in the state of Colorado, we love our deer, and and obviously uh, elk are uh, very prominent across the state. There might be nothing that that maybe catches the imagination of somebody out in the high country when they're walking around and stumble upon a moose and just kind of experiencing the majesty of what those creatures are, don't you think?
1: Absolutely. and Partly because of the sheer size, they are such a large animal Uh, for the most part. they're, They're relatively docile in the sense of they move slowly when they need to, and most of the time they're fun to watch. A lot of people have the chance that once you see them, you can observe them for a long time. They don't quite have that uh, fleeing getaway attitude as much as a deer and elk sometimes where you'll see them, they disappear. The moose will stand there. And a lot of times in the habitat they're in when they're in the willows or along our stream bottom or something, you get a chance to enjoy and watch them for a long time. That That's the experience that we hope people enjoy the most.
0: So go, tell us about the planning process in advance of the operation for the White River National Forest. I mean, that, that, that's that got to be a pretty intricate, I would think, plan when you lay in place when you're trying to expand the population.
1: Yeah, it, it's a several-year process prior to the time you actually get to let an animal loose on the landscape. So we have to work with, obviously, all of our different entities. So the federal land management agencies, whether it's the U.S. Forest Service or uh, Bureau of Land Management, whoever, some of the land controlling agencies, you want to work with them up front. We've got to make sure we're all agreeing that, that moose would be beneficial in the White River, as an example here. That would be a benefit to the overall ecosystem, would not cause problems for neighboring landowners, would not cause problems for other species that already exist on the landscape. So, working with those entities, we do a public process, we throw it out, we try to get a lot of comments back. Are people in favor of it? Are they against it? And then we have to do the kind of what we call the habitat assessment component, where we go out and we map a lot of the the potential habitat where these moose would live? Do we have enough to support a population? How many could we support? So it is a long, complex process until that day you actually get to open the gate and let them go.
0: You know, a little while back here, we did a podcast in Colorado Outdoors about lynx. And I'm thinking to myself, that was a pretty simple process. You you trap a lynx, you move it. It's a small creature. How does one go about transporting, first catching, and being able to transport you know, a 2,000-plus-pound animal like a moose. How does that whole process unfold?
1: Wow. And, and from a physical standpoint, it, it's pretty incredible to think about it. So, again, it takes a lot of people power, takes a lot of bodies, a lot of professionals, a lot of equipment as far as trailers and trucks and so forth. So on the White River's example, the first group we got came out of the Ogden area north of Salt Lake City in Utah. Uh, the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources were having some issues with conflict moose, getting into some of their suburban areas, schoolyards, neighborhoods, and they were trying to reduce that population and get some of those moose out. So we graciously said we would accept those moose as part of our transplant. So we took a crew of people over there. We took many horse trailers, probably I can't remember exactly, but 8 or 10 horse trailers over there. We have a capture crew. Uh these are professionals. They use helicopters. They have phenomenal techniques at trapping all kinds of animals. They go out, and they would locate the moose specifically we're looking for. They put a net over them. They use a net gun, so they actually shoot a net over them, get them entangled. They get them down, blindfolded. They get them hobbled. They put them in a sling, and they bring them to a location from a helicopter. It's kind of an amazing thing to see a a moose uh, suspended below a helicopter, but they bring them to a, a landing area we have, and then we go out. Physically, as a group of 15 or 20 people, and you, you take control of the moose, you make sure they're safe, make sure they're not hurt. And then at that point, we, we do whatever we have to do. If we put a radio collar on some them, we ear tag them, we collected blood to make sure everything looks good genetically. And then we load them into a horse trailer, let them go, let them lay there. We have uh, straw and stuff in the bottom so they're comfortable. Right. And then they get the fun road trip to where they're getting released. <laughs>
0: That's an amazing, uh, very detailed process, undoubtedly. Talk a little bit to the idea. We know that for, uh, you know, outdoorsmen and the the dollars that come in as a result of of the hunting uh, community, go to conserving and establishing wildlife populations. Talk a little bit about how how that impacts what you guys were doing in 2005 and moving forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're a cash-funded agency for the most part, so majority of the... Projects we do, management, all the things we do with fish and wildlife and stuff. It comes from sportsmen's dollars, predominantly. Uh, so when a person buys a hunting license, that money is going to go to protect a whole variety of species. In this case, we used it for moose. So we were able to utilize the money that it takes to, to get the helicopter crew and to do the evaluations, get the equipment out there, and then bring them over, transport them out, release them, all part of sportsmen and what they do to support management. And then once they're here on the landscape, within our, our community of, on the White River, the people love it. I mean, people embraced it. They've enjoyed it. They they take pride in it. It, it becomes a part of the community and part of the success. So it, it's a complex, big process. But for the most part, moose have been a great win for our state.
0: Bill, I, I'm, I'm assuming you know this. You were either famous or infamous, depending on how you look at this. There is a... Uh... A legendary story about you tasting moose poop. Do you care to comment on that?
1: I actually learned that from an old time one of my predecessors. Absolutely, (laughs) and uh, yeah, you got to get the flavor of the animal. You got to get with nature (laughs) and really embrace the whole aspect of it. So yeah, I learned that trick from a a fellow coworker for many years, and uh, yeah, it's just something you got to do for the job, I guess you'd say.
0: (laughs) Total commitment (laughs) by Bill. Uh, can can you at all uh, maybe explain or describe the taste?
1: Well, it's something you probably would never expect to find in some of your local restaurants. I'll start <laughs> with that part of it. But it uh, depends on how desperate you are and, and how long you've lived in nature. It depends on whether you would uh, call it an acquired taste or not. <laughs>
0: Uh, lastly, here, before I let you go, and you, you kind of touched on this, but g- give us an idea, northwest Colorado and, and there in the White River National Forest, uh, how the moose are doing and, and, and kind of how you view the future for this species.
1: Well, so far, they're doing very well uh, in, in both the White River, the Grand Mesa. For the most part, our moose populations, they're expanding. Um, they, they do migrate out before we even transplanted this, these first two groups on the White River, we had individuals that kind of would be dispersed and moved from to other populations around the state, so they kind of established a little bit. I'm sure these are doing the same. They're moving a little bit further to the east and the west and the south. They intermix with some of the other groups. The populations are steadily growing. Um, we do have hunting licenses out there. Uh, we have over 200 hunting licenses across the state to help control that population a little bit. Uh, the good thing about moose is they're fairly solitary, isolated uh, animal. They don't get into large groups. We don't have a lot of problems with uh, you know, landowners having too many moose eating too much of their hay or causing problems. Sure. So for the most part, they're, they're a great partner to have out there on the landscape.
0: Well, it's one of the most spectacular creatures we have here in the state of Colorado. Hey, Bill, great stuff. We appreciate the background. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks to Bill Devergie for his expertise. Now we pivot to Eric Bergman, a wildlife researcher who focuses on the Population Ecology of Ungulates, Ungulate-Habitat Relationships, Harvest Management, Population and Behavioral Dynamics of Predator-Prey Systems and Models, and Animal Movement. Eric, we got some great history from Bill regarding moose here in the state of Colorado. Let's start off with this. What's your view of why moose have done so well here in this state?
2: Well, I think the uh, a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s when they were brought in here, um, a lot of our biologists and uh, wildlife managers realized that there was a lot of excellent habitat, and it was really underutilized. Not, um, uh, not to say that uh, that elk and deer and even livestock don't use some of the habitat that uh, that moose really thrive in, but I think the overlap is is somewhat uh, minimal, and so there was kind of an unexploited niche um, that uh, that moose were really able to take advantage of. And uh, and I think we've we've kind of seen that since over the last three to four decades, as, as populations have really expanded, and and you do see occasional overlap um, spatially between between the species, but I think uh, dietary-wise, they're mooser pretty unique, and they're able to take advantage of some of the, uh, the food resources out there that uh, other species don't thrive on. And so it's um, just kind of an untapped resource that they were able to
0: utilize. You know, I, I understand you recently completed a five-year study on moose here in, in Colorado. Tell us about the impetus behind the study and, and what exactly you went into the study looking for.
2: There was really kind of two uh, simultaneous, um, uh, there wasn't a single impetus. I guess there were two of them. Um, the first is that Historically, you know, we when moose were released in Colorado, uh, they were kind of set free, and it's not that we weren't paying attention; uh, we were. It's just we didn't have a lot of resources uh, to to monitor moose populations like we do a lot of our other large mammal populations. If you think about deer, elk, or pronghorn, every year our biologists and managers are able to go out and track those populations and and kind of um, in our independent herds and and monitor them pretty closely and. Um, even though, um, we have a lot, relatively speaking, we have a lot, a lot of moose in Colorado right now. We're, we're guessing up to 3,000, but when you put that in the context of those other species, um, we have somewhere, uh, depending on the time of year, if it's before or after the hunting season, we'll have anywhere from 260,000 to 300,000 elk. So, and then also probably over 400,000 deer, probably 70,000 pronghorn. So even though Colorado has a lot of moose, um. Relatively speaking, we don't have nearly as many as those other species, and we just have—you uh, know—there is there's financial limitations to to how how intensively we can monitor every population, and so part of the goal of the research was to develop some more cost-effective ways to evaluate our moose populations on an annual or semi-annual basis. Uh, which would just kind of make uh, all that information would feed into both our our population management, uh, but then also just the general knowledge. Because you know, as moose increase through the state, there's um, more and more overlap with uh, with um, with people, and there's a lot of questions, and there's a lot of just uh, local interest, or not not even local, but um, moose are kind of a charismatic species, and people are always asking questions about them. And sure. and I think we kind of found that we didn't have the Necessarily have all the information to answer a lot of those questions, um, so that was part of it. Is just to develop a, a management p- program that would perhaps be um, give us more information on an annual basis, but also not necessarily cost quite as much as it costs for for other other large mammal species. And then the second impetus is that we were c- starting to hear that moose populations in in a lot of other states and particularly in the Rocky Mountains were uh, not necessarily. I don't want to say they were all doing poorly. Some were doing poorly, but others were doing quite well. So there seemed to be a lot of variability from one herd to the next as to as to what was going on with moose populations. And we just really didn't have, um, I guess we didn't have our finger on the pulse of what was going on in Colorado. And we wanted to make sure that if um, if things were not going well in Colorado, that we were aware of it and hopefully knew why. And it, it, as it as it's played out. Um, Moose are doing quite well in Colorado, um, so that that concern was was somewhat alleviated pretty quickly uh, but going into the research we didn't we didn't know that
0: so, so coming out of the back end then of this five year study what was there anything that surprised you uh, were there some of the findings maybe that you didn't expect
2: uh, yeah I think so um, and, it, and it it gets a little bit into the nuances of of population ecology um, so I'm not sure um it's it's probably something that's surprising to somebody that kind of studies this stuff. Sure, but uh, uh, in a lot of a lot of other states, uh, moose, and and this is particularly up in Alaska where it's a different subspecies of moose. But one of the management tools that they use is um, they fly every year for their their important herds and they they count the number of. Twinning rate. And so if a, if a female moose is um, getting all the nutrition she needs, um, in Alaska they tend to have very high twinning rates. So they'll see anywhere from um, 30 to seven, 65 to 70 percent of their cows will have twins every year. So mm. they're, um, to put it in the frame of reference for Colorado, that's very much like a mule deer. Our, our mule deer in Colorado have, uh, typically have, have two fawns every year. And so in Alaska they were seeing that that was something that they could. Um, monitor for for their moose populations as well and so I was optimistic going into this research that that same twinning rate might be actually be really useful for Colorado in our in our own management and I very quickly learned that the the Shira subspecies the subspecies of moose down in the in the Rocky mountains they have uh, very low twinning rates um, okay. even when they're um if they're in a really high nutritional plane if they're very fit they will have twins uh but at some they reach a, a it doesn't even have to be a very high density, and that twinning rate starts dropping off and um so I was a little bit surprised to find that um that there was that big of a difference between the two subspecies of moose and, and what we've seen in Colorado has largely been corroborated uh both in Montana and Utah, speaking with colleagues there, they have really low twinning rates for the the Shiver subspecies in those states as well um so that was kind of surprising um that that there was such a wide difference between, a, um, you know, two subspecies of the moose. They're hmm. largely the same animal. Um, and we don't really have an explanation for why that is, but it it seems to be consistent. Um, but one thing we did observe is that uh, the pregnancy rates, so the annual, the number of females in the population that breed each year is quite a bit lower. Okay. Um, so that's... Um, somewhere in the, we've in colorado we've been seeing in the sixty five to seventy percent range or sixty five to seventy five percent range i would guess um, is what we've been seeing and in comparison to to mule deer and elk it's more consistently in the upper eighties if not up to ninety five percent so so our moose in colorado um, tend to to breed a little less frequently and they don't have quite as many calves when they do breed um, but uh, apparently um, our populations are stable and growing, so I think we must have really high survival of those calves when when they hit the ground in Colorado. Which, um, again, is not um, it's not intuitive uh, from a population management standpoint, especially with large large ungulates, large mammals. Typically, during that first year of life, um, a lot of these species have quite low survival, okay. and that's why they have anywhere from two to three young of the year each year um, to kind of offset that, that mortality and it seems that moose the production is actually lower but the survival is higher so it's kind of an interesting twist on, on what we've seen for other species in
0: Colorado. Yeah that certainly is interesting so when we talk about the growth of moose here in Colorado both both it, from the expanse standpoint with you know going in the new territories and also the numbers do you feel good about the the future of moose here in our state and their, their health?
2: Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, so certainly we've seen, um, I would say, more so in the last, or I think this has really become apparent in the last uh, 10 to 20 years, okay. is that moose are very adept at colonizing and finding new new areas in Colorado. And I think um, spatially we're, we're, we've got to be getting quite close to being full. I don't know that there's too many places in Colorado left that are, are good moose habitat that don't have at least a few moose in them. And so, one, that just speaks to, we haven't moved, we've moved them certainly to different parts of the state of Colorado, but we haven't moved them, every, moved moose everywhere, and they've been very adept at finding finding good habitat on their own. And they've also surprised us by using habitat that uh, historically I don't think we would have necessarily associated with, with moose. Um, I think a lot of people make the assumption that, you know, moose, typically use you know aspen forests or willow stands in, in kind of in wetland areas and they certainly do use those but we're also learning that they'll use a lot of upland shrub communities um, this interesting. is interesting particularly noticed in like on the grand mesa um, habitats that i don't think anybody ever imagined would be productive or heavily utilized by moose but they certainly do use it hmm. uh, so that's been i guess surprising but it's also uh, suggestive that there is um there's a lot of a lot of those, between those three types of habitat we just described, that, that's a lot of Colorado. And so there is really good habitat here. Um, and then a lot of the, the factors that seem to be negatively impacting moose in other states uh, are seem to be linked to high densities of white-tailed deer. And the moose in Colorado, uh, the, the few moose that do encounter white-tailed deer. Um, typically those white-tailed deer populations are non-migratory. They're largely just kind of small, isolated pockets or herds. And um, those white-tailed deer do not have much opportunity to go out and uh, interact with other deer. That is a really good way that a lot of these parasites and diseases get spread. Um, And so if the white-tailed deer aren't contracting them in Colorado, uh, the the opportunity for them to spread them to moose is also uh, quite low. So I think that's uh, another factor that I think just bodes well for for moose in
0: colorado moose are such an amazing creature and so majestic and and you talked about how how people love to kind of just view them and watch them obviously from a great distance because they're also very large and can be very dangerous i'm wondering from your field study portions of what you've done how do you go about getting hands-on uh data on moose and are are there any stories you can pass along maybe from the field work uh, portion of your study that that might be of interest uh
2: yeah that's a that's a good question and uh uh, so I think that's where, uh, you know, we've really taken advantage of the, of uh, uh, the benefits of modern medicine. So the way we capture moose is, uh, we contract with a, a capture company, and they're based out of, the company that we've used for the last 15 years or so is based out of Alaska, and they have a lot of experience capturing, capturing moose. And, uh, typically what they do is they'll fly out and there'll be a helicopter pilot and then, uh, somebody in the helicopter that we call the gunner, which is, uh, Basically, a person that's able to lean out of the helicopter and fire a, a tranquilizer dart and and hit the animal. And the, the fascinating thing about, I guess, modern medicine and then also just moose uh, in general is um, it takes very little of a. We use a fairly potent uh, opioid, mm-hmm. um, but uh, and what it is able to do is it'll uh, between when the dart hits the animal um, and when it goes to sleep is can be anywhere from maybe three to five minutes so it's a pretty quick induction which mm-hmm. is, uh, speaks really well to the, um, the the effectiveness of that drug and the nice thing about having a really quick induction time like that is the animal doesn't have a whole lot of opportunity to, to run itself into a dangerous situation mm-hmm. in three minutes um, especially if the helicopter is able to back off and not and, and reduce the stress levels a lot of times what those animals will do is they'll just stop running um, they'll just stand there and kind of watch, and then within, you know, a couple of minutes, a lot of times they're, they're bedded on the ground and asleep, and typically the helicopter can can maneuver and kind of push an animal away from anything that's dangerous, whether it be sure. open water, a cliff, or something like that, and a lot of times they will bed down, moose being what they are, um, they'll bed down in a somewhat open area, so the helicopter can quickly land, and that gunner can run over and um, Make sure the animal is sternal, uh, keep its head upright, and so that it has doesn't have any trouble breathing on its own. And, you know, speaking with the the guy that runs the capture company and he's done, he's probably handled more moose than just about anybody, he actually refers to uh, moose capture as a very gentlemanly way to go about capture because it is uh, so anticlimactic. There's just yeah. not a lot of excitement because the drugs are effective, and um and moose, if you're not pushing them, don't necessarily. Uh, they're they're a fairly predictable animal. Okay. And so once once an animal is asleep on the ground, then they can use the helicopter to uh, ferry myself and and the veterinarian in. And typically we can process an animal in about 15 to 20 minutes, and and release it. And and the other nice thing about the the capture drugs that we use is they're very easily reversed. So within uh, I would say anywhere from 90 seconds to, to two and a half minutes uh, from when we administer the reversal drug, the, the animal's actually up wow. and moving on the phone. And that's exactly what we want to see, simply because, you know, if an animal's up and moving around, um, they, their metabolic systems are, are far better at taking care of them than, than what we can do while they're under anesthesia. Yeah. So it's very satisfying to watch an animal stand up and, and slowly saunter away um, after being captured. Uh, only because you know that the, the outcome for the animal is going to be probably really quite good. And um, they didn't suffer any negative consequences of the, or no major consequences. I'm sure there was stress associated with the capture, but uh, but it was minimized. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, in terms of your question about excitement or uh, drama, that I think that's another surprising thing about moose is that our, the capture of moose is actually very, very um, low-key and kind of a, a methodical process. Uh, despite the fact that they are so massive
0: <laughs> yeah i was gonna say that that, that is surprising it, it's good to hear but it's surprising because they are so enormous lastly here before we let you go and you've been fantastic uh, in this conversation here in your study of ungulates i'm what what's special about moose in in your eyes compared to other stu- uh, species that you've studied uh, well
2: i think um i have a, actually a good friend that's um he's not a not a wildlife biologist but uh I was visiting him with him once and kind of explaining some of the research that we're doing, and he started laughing when I told him that I work on moose, and he said, you know, that's the one animal that seems to have been designed by committee as opposed to <laughs> a, a single person. And I think it's because they, when you look at them, they've got such unique physical attributes, and each one of those attributes is, um, they do kind of, um, they look a little bit peculiar, but each one of those attributes is uh, is is very, serves a, a specific purpose. You know, the long legs allow them to wade out into, into deep water. Um, the, they've got the large large noses and heads. Um, they actually, inside their, their noses, um, they have flaps that will actually come down when they dunk their head underwater for foraging, which prevents water from flowing back up into their sinus cavities and into their lungs. And so it's all those little attributes kind of combined is, I think, what makes them so unique, because they've they are, even though they're they are a deer, at least in the broader cast, category of, of deer species. So they're not that far removed from you know the mule deer or white-tailed deer or elk that we're we're used to seeing in Colorado. Um, they are still different. And um, plus, I think another thing that I think is really cool about them is is their social behavior and and also their um, their behavior around people. Uh, they're, as I mentioned, they're they're unique in terms of appearance, but they're also, um, behaviorally, they're not as flighty. So what I I think one thing that I really like about them is that when a person is, you know, in an area and they can see a moose, preferably from a, you know, a safe distance, a lot of times that moose isn't going to run away. So they provide, as a species, they provide really kind of neat uh, wildlife viewing opportunities. Uh, You know, again, put that into comparison with, you know, mule deer, or elk, a lot of times it's... um, One of those animals sees sees a person. The first thing they're going to do is run and get out of sight, get away from them. And moose aren't necessarily going to do that. And so it provides the public just the opportunity to interact with wildlife and watch them um, without feeling like uh, they're only going to get a two or three second glance. Like you can actually watch them for for several minutes on end, uh, as long as you know nobody's misbehaving. And I I think that's somewhat
0: rare and uh, kind of. Yeah, they are fascinating and amazing creatures. Eric, great conversation. We appreciate the time.
2: Yeah, yeah, my pleasure.
0: Well, our thanks to wildlife researcher Eric Bergman for joining us. Now let's get into moose behavior and what to do when we encounter moose when we're out recreating. Joining us is wildlife officer out of the Steamboat South District, Kyle Bond. Kyle, welcome to Colorado Outdoors. So off the top here, what's been your experience as to how the general public kind of perceives moose when they encounter them out in the wild?
3: yeah, Mark, thanks for having me. Um, ultimately, people when they encounter moose, I, I get a really diverse spectrum of of uh, how people feel about moose or how they perceive them out in the wild or or even in town as we get closer. Uh, a lot of what I see generally can be some intimidation, some fear they are very large animals. I also do range all the way down to complete comfort and people that have been very complacent around moose and they get very comfortable. so, I, I say that I would I'd span a pretty good spectrum of both complacency
0: and fear. You know, you just mentioned how large they are, and the moose are Colorado's largest wild mammals. Is it safe to say they're the most dangerous and unpredictable uh, creatures we've got here in the state of Colorado?
3: I would agree with that. They are definitely one of the most unpredictable, and, and can be one of the most dangerous animals. Their their sheer size, and they don't really have any natural predators around here. So as far as as far as they are, they're they're kind of top of the totem pole, if you will, and they're. Uh, they're, yeah, just a big, massive animal that they can be. They can cover ground really quickly. They have a, they can have a short temper if you impro- approach them too closely. Particularly if we get into specific times of the year,
0: and yeah, they can they can pose a significant threat to you. And generally, I, I know this from personal experience. When you come across them, they don't seem to be afraid of humans. Typically, don't get out of your way. So uh, for folks out there when they're recreating up in the high country, what should they do when they have a moose encounter?
3: Is one just to make sure that that you're giving those animals their space. Uh, there's there's some big things that you can look for that can show if they're starting to become agitated or if you're starting to encroach on them a little too close. They may start laying their their ears down. They may start licking their snout, and you'll see maybe some hackles raising up along their their back or their their shoulder humps. So once you start seeing those, you're 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 pretty close to them. You're getting too close. If if at any time you notice that. You're, you're attracting their attention, that is probably at least a, a good place to stop there. But if you're in one of those situations where you do encounter them, maybe you came around a corner or something and you had no idea that those moose were there and it's, it's more of a surprise encounter and you happen to be pretty close, the big thing is to make yourself, you know, appear as large as you can, let the moose know you're there, talk to them in a calm calm manner. Don't start yelling immediately. And if you if you act calm with them, a lot of times they'll be calm with you, back away give them their space and yield to them. If they're coming down the trail, best thing for you to do is to step off, give them a wide berth, and let them be able to, to come through on their own accord and just keep everything keep everything as calm as possible. If you have a dog, you're always going to want those to be on a on a very short leash.
0: <laughs> you know, Kyle, we live in a world, though, where when we're out and about, uh, we've got to get pictures of everything we see. Uh, you talked about the safe distance. I think that's a good reminder for folks, isn't it? If you're going to be taking a pictures of moose, let's make sure you're using the zoom on your camera or your phone, right?
3: Absolutely, yeah. The the more zoom, the better. We don't want to have any of those real close selfie photos that are so that are so popular today because those, those ultimately bring you right in close to them, and you'll, a lot of times, if you're taking a selfie, you're probably turning your back on them. You're not seeing what's going on, and that can cause a serious problem.
0: You know, if a moose does happen to attack, uh, let's say you're out, you're hiking someplace, you've got the dog with, and it does happen, what, what, what's your directive under those kind of circumstances?
3: Sure, and a, a big thing is to be able to recognize when, when you're getting into that attack phase some of those characteristics that I – or some of those uh, behavior characteristics that I mentioned prior with as far as spinning their ears back or licking their snout or raising some of the hackles is that uh, you're going to want to put some, put a, a large object between you and the moose as quickly as you can, whether that be a tree, a boulder, um, just, just anything you can get behind.
0: Kyle, as you know, I live up in the high country, and so I've had moose around my home, as have my neighbors, obviously. Are there things we need to be concerned about? We, we know there are tractants for deer and for elk and, and that kind of thing. Are there things we should be thinking about in regards to moose in terms of safety and maybe keeping them off the property or not drawing them in?
3: Sure, yeah, and you know, having moose around, especially in some of these higher mountain towns is is kind of a rare opportunity that that a lot of folks don't get to experience. So it's a pretty special thing to be able to have them uh, around in in a place where where we live. But with that does come a a certain responsibility, and that's making sure that we're keeping our homes and everything as as wildlife-friendly as we can. And so when I say that, a lot of the issues that we see popping up is that folks will like to put salt blocks out for moose uh, that attracts them, moose just like elk and deer, uh, will will frequent a salt lake if they figure out where they're at. One that is is a one. It's illegal. Where we can't we can't intentionally feed wildlife. Sure. And then bringing them in close to you like that that starts to imprint on them that humans are are a, are a source of food and we do not want to encourage that. And then also we have a risk for transmi- uh, disease transmission as the, as it brings moose closer and nose to nose with each other. So we want to make sure that we're not putting any type of food sources out, whether it be salt blocks, carrots, lettuce, whatever um, you have that you you think think that a moose would like to eat. Mm. Uh, So make sure that we're not doing that. And then if they're around your home, the big thing is just making sure that you're giving them, again, you're giving them their space, that you take those considerations that if you need to let the dog out to go to the bathroom, say, and you know there's a moose in your backyard, it may be a good idea to go out the front door that time. (laughs) Um, I'd consider a house a pretty good object to put between you and a moose. So just take those little simple considerations like that and just be aware of your surroundings. And if you know there's moose around, be sure to make some noise. Let them know you're there. Talk to them. That way you're not surprising them.
0: Lastly, here before we let you go, and great information, by the way, are you as kind of fascinated with moose as I think the general public is because they are such enormous and in some respects odd looking creatures. they really are kind of special, aren't they?
3: oh, absolutely they're they're a very unique creature that we have around here, and i'm i never I've never ceased to be amazed by their their sheer size and just their their character when you're in close with them. I know we've put in we've put out a couple of callers that you know we ultimately have to go hands on to get that. Collar on them under a, a sedated situation and every time i'm around one of them it just blows me away how massive those animals are and, mm. and you know they, they can be intimidating even from a point of being sedated because they're just they're that big and you know there's a lot of power behind the legs and everything and they're yeah they're an incredible animal
0: kyle great stuff we appreciate all the uh, insight and the conversation you bet thank you mark great conversation today on colorado outdoors on one of the most fascinating creatures which inhabits our great state the moose Our thanks to Bill Devergie, Eric Bergman, and Kyle Bond for lending their expertise. Remember, for anything and everything pertaining to Colorado Parks and Wildlife, go to our website at cpw.state.co.us. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Outdoors, powered by Great Outdoors Colorado. I'm your host, Mark Johnson. Until next time, get out and enjoy the great outdoors in our beautiful state of Colorado. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is a nationally recognized leader in conservation, outdoor recreation, and wildlife management. The agency manages 42 state parks, 960 plus species of wildlife in Colorado, more than 350 state wildlife areas, and a host of recreational programs from hunting and fishing to the state's trails program, boat registration, snowmobiles, off-highway vehicles, and more. All of its management is in perpetuity for the enjoyment of Coloradans and its visitors.